0: Good evening everybody. How's everybody doing? I think you all said fine. Great. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I am also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of right now, Sunny Sacramento. It's either one extreme or the other, right? We could go. I was complaining about the rain not stopping. Well, that's that's all taken care of now. Now it's sitting and now we're hitting the nineties. We're not even out of May yet. So here comes summer, right? Anyway, I want to welcome everybody here. Um, a quick note: if you haven't seen the show before, and you like what you see, and you're watching from Facebook, please be sure to follow. We do a show every night, Sunday through Friday. No, yeah, Sunday through uh, yeah Sunday through Friday, and uh, Sundays we read from a a, a paranormal theme book. And okay, and so it's kind of like a layback Sunday. It's just sit down and and listen to me read from the book. eyes are squinty allergies um and then during the week we have guests on like our guest tonight joe joseph jim call call up sorry i'm having trouble saying that today but uh yeah and the same thing goes for if you're watching for the first time from from um youtube and you like what you hear uh please be sure to hit that like button get those hearts flying show me some love because what it does on facebook and youtube is it puts us higher up in the algorithm which means more people get to see it. It shows up, you know, on the main public algorithm for YouTube and Facebook. So that means more people get to see it, and therefore, you know, they sign on to be subscribers and whatnot. And that's the other thing too. YouTube, we're looking for subscribers. So if there's something you like, there's a, more than 600 videos sitting over there that we've done, all shows. And if you see one that you like, you know, or something that you like besides tonight, of course, uh, subscribe. And what I've done is. You know, instead of having a hodgepodge of 600 videos because it can get confusing, right? You're going, you just got to go together and figure out what the heck it's about. I've taken and categorized a bunch of them, and I put folders out there. And so, uh, you know, like uh, ghosts and hauntings would be one folder, and you know, uh, current events would be another folder, et cetera, et cetera. So you can go in and say, hey, I want to, I want to see something on the Ropes Mansion, right? So you go in under ghosts and hauntings and check that out, right? That that's where you would go so that's pretty much what's going on over there's about there's like 15 folders over there you can check and i'm sure there's something you're going to like i mean there's something for everybody i'm a journalist i'm a photojournalist by trade and i don't like covering the same stuff all the time because i was i was a general assignment reporter too so i don't like covering the same stuff all the time so you can tell that by just going and looking at the folders that i've got all these different topics out there including current events you know Serial killers, things like that. And current events news. Like uh, We're covering the, uh, the, the, uh, the, opioid, the, the opioid epidemic right now. So that's something that uh, we've been starting to cover. So I'd like to get out and do that. Okay, that being said, you see the flashy thing at the bottom. Um, the week's goal to 129. That's because of this computer I'm on. I've been using this computer for the last three years. The hard drive's starting to go. And uh, it's running out of space. I have a backup that's almost full now. And so I'm going to have to get a new hard drive. I thought about buying a new new laptop, but to get what I need and what I want, it's just not feasible at this point. So I'm trying to buy a new hard drive. And like I say, anytime you guys donate anything to the show, everything goes back into the show. That's where it goes. It goes back into supporting the show, whether it's lighting, mics, whatever, to, to keep the show on the air. So if you could you know, find it in your heart to help me out, you know, get to reach towards that 129, that would be great because this this thing's, I got the blue screen of death twice today already. <laughs> so it's kind of scary. You guys that are, are Windows people understand what the blue screen of death is. Okay. And you can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts or at Venmo at California Haunts. It's that simple. Okay. That being said, got a lot of cool things coming up. I'm going to be making an announcement here in the next couple of days for a contest that I think you guys are really going to be interested in. And again, the Patreon starting to come up. The issues over at Patreon are just about resolved. So we're going to get that up and running to where you guys get to see uh, the shows that have been pre-recorded. You get to see them two weeks in advance. So that's a, that's a cool perk. And then Nancy Mattis is going to be our first guest over at Patreon. So it's going to be an after-hours guest. We're going to call it uh, Haunts After Hours? Ghosts After Hours? Find some kind of topic for it. You know, some kind of name for it. And uh, you can go one-on-one with whatever guest. And so we're going to start doing that as well over there. Plus, for everybody that subscribes over at Patreon, we're going to hold a contest uh, every month—a grab raffle—and there's going to be some giveaways, like coffee cup, California Haas coffee cups, shirts, and things like that. So we're really opening up over at Patreon. All right. That being said, and now that I'm out of breath again, if you're watching from Facebook and YouTube, and you like what you see, hit those thumbs up buttons. Show, show me some love, smileys, whatever you you know, whatever you want to do just show me some love all right my guest tonight joseph 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 i did again joseph jim connor you know what i'll let him give you the name i'm just i don't know why i'm having issues with this joseph Geo. aha i got it joseph G- Gioconda. i don't know why i'm having an issue with that but anyway i feel bad sorry joseph i see you sitting out there <laughs> um He's got a great story to tell, the Ropes Mansion. And I I never heard of the Ropes Mansion until a couple weeks ago when I started digging around and do some research in it. And it's a fascinating place. And I'll let him explain the book that he's written. You know, he's written a couple books on it. And uh, we'll talk to him about his research and things like that. We'll talk to him about the mansion, okay? All right, let me bring him in. Now that I made a total fool of myself mispronouncing his name like 18 times.
1: (laughs) Hi, Sean. How are you?
0: I'm well known to mispronounce people's names, so this is nothing new.
1: That's okay. It's Gioconda. So, Geoconda. Don't feel bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Joseph Gioconda. See, I can do it now. Right. Maybe I slow it down. Maybe I'm talking too fast. When I did the intro, it took like ten takes because I'm like, oh my <laughs> god, I did it again. You know, all these outtakes. Tell me about you, sir.
1: Well, let's see. I have a lot. Of, I wear a lot of different hats. Um, My day job is I'm actually a lawyer. Um, I'm an intellectual property lawyer. I, I practice law here on the East Coast and. Uh, New York and Philadelphia, and I've um, uh, been in my own practice. I've had my own practice for about 12 years now, um, and that allows me to travel around. I have a lot of uh, uh, interesting clients around the world, so I've been able to travel uh, as part of my work, which is always a, a fun thing to do, because then on my on the side, I can sort of do some research uh, if I have a few hours here and there when I travel. Um, and I started writing, um, let's see, I, I would say I started really putting together things about 12 years ago around the time I started my law firm. And um, I, you know, it, it sort of went in in fits and starts in terms of getting things out there. And then my first book that I finally got out a few years ago was the Pope's butcher. And uh, uh, that is based on a true story of a serial killer who was active in the medieval Vatican. Ooh. And a lot of time researching that in the United States and Europe and uh, I, I put that book out and, and people really enjoyed the concept of his, history and true crime horror. Uh, and it has a little bit of paranormal in there too. And then um, I wrote a couple of other books since then, a book of short stories, and then the book you mentioned, uh, Salem's Ropes, um, which I'm happy to talk at length about. It's, it's one, of the, one of the books that people find the most interesting to talk about because it's accessible. It's, it's a place you can go and mm-hmm. investigate and research and visit actually get a tour
0: what got you interested into writing something like salem's ropes?
1: so i've always loved paranormal stuff I'm, I'm a big fan of of paranormal um shows uh I, I was a big watcher of shows like ghost hunters but i was also a big fan of the old uh, horror genre um and i visited um a few sort of so-called haunted houses on tours all, all over the place one in san diego uh a, a couple here and there And it's a funny story how I came across the the Ropes Mansion. I I don't know if you heard this on another podcast I did, but I actually had a dream about it. And really strange story how it came to me was that I had never been there. Um, I had passed it. It's in Salem, Massachusetts. It's right smack dab in the middle of downtown Salem. And I had uh, seen it in a movie, Hocus Pocus, the original movie that came out in the I guess it's early 90s now, a very popular Halloween movie, and it's Allison's house in, in Hocus Pocus. Um, and I'd seen it, maybe driven past it when I was in Salem, but I had never really given it much thought. But I, I, I literally had a dream about it. And I woke up and I started writing down my dream, started writing down um, what I could remember about the mansion. And then started, you know, researching it and went there. And what I couldn't believe was how much history there was under the surface that I had essentially dreamt about, I essentially thought about without actually knowing. And then the more I researched, the more I visited, the more I learned about the house, the stranger and stranger the stories became as you stretched the surface.
0: Do you think that for some reason the house called out to you? I mean, I've heard stuff like that before.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I don't know. I had never really giving it much thought in my dream for what it's worth in my dream was a little distorted the dream in my dream i visualized the house as it is but i visualized it right next to the waterfront. and in reality the water is a couple of miles away probably about a mile and a half to two miles away but in my dream it was right next to the house and it also in my dream which figures into the plot in my book um that there was a, a micro brewery down the street sort of caddy corner and there isn't yet a butt microbrewery in Salem or at least not that close to it and those figured into the plot that I wrote about the the fictionalized that part of the plot but the the house itself did draw me in. There, there's something about that house that just attracted me to it. And to this day, even though you know I've been there and signed books there and given lectures there and obviously written about it, there's something about that house that just gives me chills to think about.
0: Well, once you had your dream, what was it like going to the house?
1: Well, I guess in my, when I visited in my dream uh, versus reality, I guess I was noticing all the differences at first, like, oh, in my dream, I remember it being on the waterfront. Where's the water? That kind of thing. But what I quickly remembered were the similarities. For example, the garden really jumped out at me in my dream. The garden uh, in reality, the Ropes Mansion is quite extraordinary. Mm -hmm. figures into a lot of mystery around the house. And if anybody wants to visit it in downtown Salem, one of the first things that you'll, you'll perceive about it is not just the frontage is really dramatic and remarkable, but the, the, the land that it's on is enormous and has been uncultivated. You know, they haven't built on it in 350 years. So it's, it's concentric circles uh, in the garden. So it's pre Victorian long before Victorian era gardens, and they've never built on it. And one can only imagine in reality what the history is if you were to excavate under that garden, because that's exactly where the Salem Witch Trials were um, right there. And that was where the, you know, it, 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 if you look from the front of that house, you can see the Salem Witch Museum and the church wow. and all the things where where all this stuff happened. So it's it's just a really remarkable place.
0: So tell me a little bit about the history of the place then, because I obviously just did a little bit, you know, talking about the witch trials. In fact, we had read on our Sunday reading day, you know, we had read um, uh, Pitt, excuse me Pittman's book about uh, the Salem witch trials and all that mm-hmm. beyond. And so it's a fascinating topic for us. So tell me a little bit about that.
1: Sure. so the the story of Salem, the way it, it's built, the, the town is that it was a very small village back then. Um, we're talking about the 1690s and you had, you know of course the House of the Seven Gables and you have all those historical houses that are around the area. but the actual village of Salem downtown was fairly small. And so you had the church, um, that was there. You had a few outbuildings and one of the earliest buildings, really significant buildings that was built is is called, it was called the ropes mansion. And it was named that after the family that, that, that owned it. And th- they're called the ropes, which I think is sort of fascinating, right? Double meaning given the, the way the witches were hanged right. and not, not just the, you know, the accused witches, but others. Um, mm-hmm. And so the ropes mansion uh, was built um, right after the witch trials. So we don't know what physically was on the very land that the house was built on 30 years before it was built. We know that's where, you know, that's where the trials occurred. Um, and of course the women were, were hanged up the street in, in a different area by Proctor's ledge. But the, the um, area where the land, uh, the house is built on is sort of a mystery because I researched and there's no record of what was there, if they're, but they they're believed, there is believed to have been a structure there during the West trials, but there's no record of it, which is odd. And then they build the mansion. The mansion is quite extravagant. Um, for Salem, it is really quite a building. It looks a lot like the White House, really striking. Um, and it was built for, you know, a wealthy family that was that was living there. And one of the first things that was odd about it uh, no, was noticed was that the guy, the, the owner, the patriarch of the family, his wife died. And she died very, very young. Now, that wasn't terribly uncommon in that era, but it was a little odd that she died in her 20s without any clear cause. His second wife then dies, too, a few years later. His third wife then dies (laughs) dies <laughs> okay so now there is some real mystery surrounding this guy because you, you know sure smallpox was out there sure there was you know this was a, a tough time but you know this is still the 17 mid 1700s this is not you know terribly long ago so for to have three spouses dying on untimely deaths was really suspicious and so um it got to the point where the house was considered cursed and and so much so that it was essentially abandoned. So this is a man, this is a beautiful house in the middle of Salem on prime land. I mean, you know, right in the middle of the town and worth a fortune even by those standards in those days. And people just didn't want to touch it. They said, this house has already got three deaths in it that were untimely. What is this guy doing? He's either murdering his wives or, or something's going on. Um, but eventually, you know, of course, the family does acquire it and uh, they move in. And so, so here's an interesting story that happens a few years later. So we're now into the Revolutionary War era and there's already been a few untimely deaths in the house that we know of not to mention the ones that we don't know of you know that the townspeople considered a curse but the owner of the land at that point was a judge and the judge was on the king's payroll at the time so you know back then this is pre-revolutionary war so he was a loyalist to the crown and so all of a sudden you know smallpox breaks out and everybody in town is concerned about it and they find out that this judge has gotten uh, inoculated, <laughs> he's gotten va- vaccinated, and at that time, that was a very there was a very desperate attempt to get those vaccines. And um, anyone who's seen the John Ad- John Adams uh, movie is, knows about that. That they really were struggling with the concept of vaccination. There you have on the screen the pic. That's an actual photo of the house as it appears today. Um, and so, anyway, the judge w- was reported to have gotten the vaccine before anyone else because he was friends with the king. And a mob, an unruly mob, got very angry, and so they attacked the building, and they threw rocks in the window, and a rock hit the, uh, the judge in the head and killed him. And this is right on the eve of the Revolutionary War. So now you have uh, all the deaths of the ladies who lived in the home untimely. Now you have a, a murder, you know, from a mob, um, and it just continued from there. It just it just never ended. So you had, you know, decade after decade, you had strange goings on in the house, Um, The next notable death I can mention is that there was a woman in the home. This is like around 1830, 1820s. And uh, the home has many, many fireplaces and is very, very um, uh, beautiful. uh, And they wore, you know, the long gowns and um, her petticoat catches fire and she burns to death right there on the spot in the middle of the parlor. And that was unusual for a number of reasons. One was that the petticoats and gowns that they typically wore back then were wool um these were nicely made garments these weren't you know modern garments or cheap garments by any Uh means and so it was unusual for wool to catch fire and when it did it would smolder it would typically you know it would would, you know around the seams maybe there would be Uh a little smoke but she went up in a in a you know Fury and they said, and to this day, you can see the fiery scorch marks in front of the fireplace where she perished. Um, and you can go there and see that. And so, this type of thing continued and continued. So, by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century, and all of these uh folks have lived in it, and it's the same family, the ropes family has owned it for hundreds of years. Um, at that point, no one just wants to live in it anymore. You know, the ropes family's done. They 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 essentially put it into a trust, um, and the 20th century story behind the house is really interesting because, and this is where I started to take a little bit of license because I was trying to figure out what was going on, was that when it was in the family trust, the family foundation, no one was living in it, but apparently there was a provision in the in in the um, trust that allowed any family member up to like the second degree of generation to sleep in it, to live in it, you know, for a right. period of time, not, not to become a resident permanently, but to be able to live in it. And so there are lots of stories of strange comings and goings of people, um, who are distant members of the family, you know, a cousin here and there, and they die by suicide. They die by strange currents. They die in the house. Sometimes they die nearby the house in a, in an accident. Um, Sometimes they get shipped off to war and die bizarre deaths in the Pacific theater. But the house has just gotten this reputation of being cursed. Um, So fast forward to today, what my dream was about and what ultimately I wrote about was um, once it came out of the family trust, which it did in 2015, it came out of the trust. um, In my uh, story, it gets sold to a family to to a private family. Now that didn't actually happen. In reality, mm-hmm. it got taken over. It it was taken over by the Peabody Essex Museum, who now operates it today. So no one's living in it today. Um, and the Peabody may consider at some point selling it. I don't know. I mean, it's not. It's only open a couple of days a week, and that's only in season. So you can tour it. Um, And it is quite beautiful. The grounds are always open uh, to the public. But um, yeah, it's just a strange place. It has a very strange vibe. It is beautiful. But really, when you think of Salem, Massachusetts, you think of Halloween and you think of, you know, the witch trials, Uh the ropes mansion is near the top of the list of locations people visit.
0: When you started doing research for this or thought about it, where did you start? I mean, obviously there's an art, there's an archival thing, you know, historical thing in Salem, but there had to be more places to dig, right?
1: Yeah. You have to sort of dig all over the place because um, there's no one, unfortunately there was no one uh, place where everything was stored. So the first thing I did obviously was contact the mansion itself and they have uh, volunteers, they have docents and they've got a a decent amount of information on the place, um, mostly from the highlights. What's hard to find are the stories that are the darker ones. So, you know, like they'll tell you about it when it was donated to the Trust of the Museum and when it was was renovated, but it's a lot harder to find out its connections to the the witch trials and, and things like that. And so a lot of that was really hit or miss of going back into... A variety of sources and trying to find out you know you could have a whole book where you just have one or two sentences that intrigue you that say oh that's interesting like there was a connection for example potential connection between the property and tituba who was the uh, uh the accused witch
0: right
1: well you know the first witch the right. she was from barbados right. and so w- one interesting hypothesis that's sort of floating around without any real academic support is whether or not tituba had any Connection to the property or the land before it was built on, um, because again we're talking about right there. That's right where the bishop residence was. It's you know right where the families were that were involved. And um, another source of really interesting history um, for people who are interested in it is you know Arthur Miller's The Crucible. If you if you actually watch The Crucible, read The Crucible play, he took some liberties, but it opens up a lot of interesting questions. For example. No one knows what happened to Tituba. She mm-hmm. she is a mystery that it, it really is unknown. And I researched that a little bit and found it fascinating that the woman who was first accused of, of teaching the girls witchcraft and the witch trial, she was never actually executed. Interestingly, they executed the others, but she was somehow spared. And remember, she was property. So she is bailed out by someone who buys her freedom to become a slave again. And then she disappears from the the history books. No one knows anything about what happened to her. So this part is where I took artistic license, where I started saying how I felt about the house and feelings I had and whether or not there could be a story here. And so that's where I use the facts and meld them with a narrative like, what if Tituba really had something to do with the land and with the property? And it, where did she go? Could is it possible she's buried in the garden? And when I when I asked the docents and, and the museum, like, have you ever thought about? digging up the land there could there be bodies under there and they said oh there's very probably bodies under there but there's no way we're going to dig that up Mm -hmm. i mean if you're in the downtown salem and you start digging you're going to find bodies you're going to find all kinds of strange things that will open a can of worms literally because then what are you going to do right you're going to have to you're going to have to you know it's already designated a historical landmark or you're not going to put make it into a cemetery um but there's Salem itself has a lot of mystery to it, but this house always really just drew me in as having really a sort of the heart of Salem, the heart Mm -hmm. of the mysteries there. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you think it's haunted?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I I definitely do. I had one, um, I I wouldn't call it an experience because it wasn't anything like that, but um, I, I was really privileged that when I was doing a book signing there, I showed up early on a, I think I got there at like seven in the morning or eight a.m. on a Saturday and the volunteers were there, but no crowds had lined up yet. And mm-hmm. they said, oh, you're the guy who wrote the book. Do you want to go in and spend some time alone in the house? And I said, my God, would I love to? And I went around and there's no question that it is very oppressive with the feeling of history, if nothing else. The haunting part of it, you know, I didn't see anyone or feel anything specific, but what I did feel it was when you go to, from room to room, the vibes really do change dramatically. You get a different feeling of personalities and where the woman burned to death, for example, you get a certain feeling. And then when you go to the bedrooms, you have a different feeling. And so I think it probably is haunted if, you you know, again, if you believe in that, some people don't, but there's certainly residual energy. There no question about it. But the home, the house as a whole, as a home, definitely has a very strange vibe to it. No question about that.
0: I've been to older buildings like that, that are now ends. And I know in one particular up here in, in the foothills, uh, the, the, the owner's wife, the original owner's wife likes to sit downstairs in a corner and people watch. That's her thing. Hmm. You know? So people will cut, will feel her or they'll, they'll get, you know, quick glimpses of her. But all she does is sit, sit there and she's just watching. Hmm. To see everybody from you know from the century it's kind of
1: interesting there are there are um recorded observations this is something i found interesting was that i went back and i researched and what i thought was really surprising it, it really struck me was that as far back as 1906 there were already witnesses who were recording their observations of hauntings they were seeing in the house and that's something we sort of forget is that we think about haunting as like oh today in modern era we're seeing you know energy or spirits or something that were from 100 years ago but what's interesting is in 1906 they were seeing spirits from presumably uh, 100 years before them and this is recorded in observations and some of the things they saw were um, for example spirits in the garden Very common. I should say very common. It's not that common, but it's very common in terms of the records that people have recorded seeing a woman in period uh, gown in the garden and they naturally assume that it's a a reenactment and they're asking the docents they're asking the the management you know the museum they're saying oh are you performing a a reenactment it's gotten to the point where a lot of the volunteers just say oh that's that's the spirit there's no you know there's never a reenactment that occurs it's always that and it's very unlikely that these random people who've seen this in the garden would have imagined it or or are lying because they're perplexed when they ask about it. So there's something there. Now, is that that particular woman? Is it Sarah Ropes uh, who died? Is it um, one of the other Ropes sisters? Is it, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's a woman in a gown. My guess would be it was probably the woman who burned, but, um, but it could have been one of the women who was killed by her husband. I don't know. There are other stories too. Um, in, in my dream, one of the things that really stood out to me was the basement. And that is a place I did not get to visit Um, that is closed off to the public. It's I I don't know who has access to it, but in my dream, I, so I wrote that into the book. I I wrote that, um, you know, the, the that the the owner sort of loses his mind and starts to you know dig deeper and deeper and then finds in the basement a sort of sub basement where Tichuba's bones are and all of this other um occult paraphernalia that relate back to the, the witch trials. Now that's you know I made that up right. to hypothesize, but I've always felt that I, I would what I wouldn't give to go in that basement with a you know with a with a crew to really study it and see what really is down there.
0: My well, I got a question for you is as a writer yeah. Was there a temptation just to write a a, uh, a book about the ghosts there, and not write like like, like you know what you came out with? Was that temptation? Yeah.
1: So yeah. So what happens? Yeah. So so what happened? A lot of people ask me that and like why not just write it more about the spirits and the ghosts and the experiences well, and why? the history. My belief is that um, people today want a story. And, and and that helps them internalize the tr- the true stories about what really happened so uh, I so I think I think about movies or, or books you know amityville horror and things like that and you take the narrative of what really happened there and you weave it into a story that may be you know partially fictionalized and by doing that you make it creepier you make it more accessible and you make it more realistic um, for a wider audience if you just tell the story yeah it'll attract people like you and me who are interested in paranormal and right. investigations and so forth but the average person may never have learned anything about Salem's Robes if it was a book just about the mansion
0: makes sense makes sense so yeah. tell me about your writing process you know that every author has a process they do and as a journalist you know we invert the pyramids and blah 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 blah, blah you know to write our stuff how, how do you do it to put together a book like this
1: so i'll I'll give you an example of my latest book that i just released a couple of uh, weeks ago so this this new one's called ben's bones and it's about a true story again based on true story of benjamin franklin when he lived in london uh, on craven street um, during a period of time when he was the diplomat from the colonies to to the crown in the 1760s and 1770s and he was living above uh, a building that Today, in modern times, we found 20-some-odd human bodies buried in the basement. Um, I wow. think it was 28. And uh, recently, this is in the last 10 years, and they dug up these bodies, and they couldn't at first figure out why there was a, a mass of human bodies in the basement they thought maybe there was a serial killer or, you know what was the connection of benjamin franklin and it turns out that he lived there when there was an illegal medical school and anatomy school that was uh, functioning in the basement and there's a whole backstory to it um about uh, a family that lived there and he was very very close with the woman whose husband was the doctor in fact she moved back to philadelphia to be with him when he died um he, she was his surrogate daughter and so This struck me when I heard about the story as an extremely interesting story that had never been written about much at all. Again, what I did was, as a matter of historical fiction, is rather than write it as a historical treatise and say, okay, here's exactly what happened, you know, like a a biography, uh, I wrote it as a narrative story using mostly, you know, almost entirely true facts, but weaving it into a story that would make it accessible again, for the modern reader. And so that, that was sort of my process was to really dig in and research. And I'm doing that now with a new book I'm working on about a detective uh, in France in the 19th century. Uh, it's one of the strangest stories, a true story about a detective who investigates a murder in a seaside town in France only to discover he is the murderer uh, and that he himself had committed the murder while sleepwalking. And he becomes completely convinced that he is the murderer or was the murderer. And he turns himself in, puts himself on trial and was convicted of committing the murder. He prosecuted himself, spent the rest of his life under house arrest, but only at night. They handcuffed him to his bed at night because there was no evidence he hurt anyone during the day. And I hear these stories and I say, that is fascinating. Like that, that's a true story. Can't make that stuff up. Um, but again, my goal is to make it accessible and fictionalize it. And so I get an old biography about the guy written in the 1950s or 60s. And it's very dry reading. It talks about his family background. No one really cares about that. They want to hear the story. How did this guy come to believe he was a serial killer when he himself was a police detective? So um, I think a lot of it, a lot of my process is about finding a story Mm-hmm. i i believe truth is stranger than fiction i really do i think you can't make up this stuff the universe is a very very strange place and things happen every day that are truly beyond comprehension um and they make just for great stories
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so when you're coming up with characters for your books do you make a <laughs> list you know you come up with these ideas oh i, I like a character that does this or or but you know you know what i mean just to have have a running list and then you pick and choose from there
1: so <laughs> for the for the true stories for, the, for for the stories that are really based on truth I almost wed them exactly to the truth so the Ben Franklin story it was 99.9% accurate about Polly Houston, William Houston, um, and the other uh, uh, John Hunter and 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 the others in history. Um, I did invent one, well not invent, but I did um, fictionalize one of the characters that we didn't know much about, Doctor William Houston, to try to make it him the protagonist. And so with Salem's Ropes, again we have the truth about the Rope Sisters and the mm-hmm. people who died there, but I completely fictionalized a character. And this is where you have to become a modern storyteller. Is you know you say, well, what do people? What, what's the dynamic people relate to? They relate to uh, a, a, a character, protagonist. They relate to sometimes the sympathetic spouse, the struggling children. You know, even the pet. You know, the dog. You know, you have to remember we're in the business as authors of entertainment, and so you, ha- you have to constantly gauge whether or not you want to stick too close to the truth at the risk of being boring and it not being you know, modern enough. Um, And so with Salem's Ropes, I took some liberties. George is a completely fictionalized character, as is his wife, Mm -hmm. um, the family that moves into the house. But, you know, the protagonist and his wife and the family, it's it's very much an archetype of any one of us who would move into a mansion. What would it be like for an average person, for a normal person, to move into a house with that much dark history? And in Mm -hmm. the story you know, George and in, in his mind spirals downward because he becomes obsessed as I think any of us might. If you lived in a house with that much history and that much weirdness going on around you, you know, I could see the temptation and become really obsessed with digging deeper and deeper uh, and losing maybe track of what really matters. And that dynamic took on its own story in, in the book about, you know, his wife struggling and he, mm-hmm. he was a recovering alcoholic and how the compulsions to research and uh, uh, you know, and the temptations to do that really broke him down. I think that made for a good story, even though that's entirely fictionalized. But it sort of tells the story of the house in a sense.
0: I've read parts of it. I love the book. It's a great book, and it always makes me wonder. Like you know, like you putting this together with these particular people that move into a house like that. Did you do any any research on you know people that that would buy a haunted house like that? To put it in your book,
1: no, I i thought about myself for one. And as a you know, pretty traditional um family, you know, if, if my wife and my kids, you know, would they ever agree to kind of uproot and move from our, a normal suburban home, move halfway across the country like George and his wife did? And if they did, what would the stresses be like moving into a home of that character and that nature? And what would it be like? I mean, if I came home and I told my wife, I said, look, you know, I bought a house without telling you, which he does in the book, you know, I bought I bought a home without telling you, but not just that, it happens to be this dark and sordid mansion in Salem, Massachusetts, of all places, what the tensions would that create for really anybody? So I really just thought about um, take the, you know, Regular person and put them in this really horrible situation, mm-hmm. what would happen? You know, and the family breaks down in the book as it probably would in real life. They start at e- getting at each other's throats, they start blaming each other for the paranormal activity, right? Like, paranormal activity doesn't occur in a vacuum, it occurs around a family. Absolutely. And so, yeah, so when these weird things happen, it's not going to happen like, oh, you know, did you happen to move that? No, it's going to be like, why did you keep breaking the plates? Well, I didn't. No, now you're lying to me about it. You're drinking again in reality it's all paranormal but it's going to drive people mad and that's very much a part of the story of the paranormal Mm -hmm.
0: as you know Mm -hmm. how long did it take you to write it
1: um hope's butcher took me years salem's ropes took me about a year only about a year year and change i I really um frankly once i got out of the uh, habit at that point of writing historical fiction writing modern fiction was much quicker and easier because it just kind of Frankly, the story told itself. I, I I was like I said, I dreamt the almost the entire plot. And so I sat down and just um, it was it was a weird book in the sense that it was already written in my head before I put pen to paper. Kind, kind of strange. My other books were not like that. They were much more laborious, uh, research driven. Salem's Ropes was a story that, as I said, I literally dreamt the entire story.
0: It seems like, you know, with the contact that what whoever whatever made with you that they wanted to have their story told.
1: Yeah, I actually, I, I believe that. And and one of the things that, that uh, as I've written, one of the things that struck me about each of the books, Pope's Butcher, for example, about all the victims, and we're talking a lot of victims of the uh-huh. original witch trials in the in 1500s, the 1600s, but then you get to Salem, is that these were regular people, in many cases, who were just slaughtered for either having, alternative beliefs or no beliefs. They were just on the outs and, and marginalized people in society. And uh, and even with Ben's Bones too, I, I I thought about a lot about what it was like for regular people in the 1770s and having their graves robbed, which is what anatomists did. They they stole bodies from the graves. And, um, you know, I think we forget that these class tensions and gender tensions and all these very tensions are certainly not new, but they were actually much worse in the past. They were quite quite bad and so I, I started to identify with a lot of these victims and realize that you know when we dig up a body like those 28 bodies in the basement right. of Ben Franklin's house those were 28 people those were kids those were wives those were children you know those were cho- they were they were mothers and daughters. Um, so when people in history are found you know or when we write about them um, in history it, it's really interesting as a writer to connect with them because they sometimes do want their stories told in some way.
0: Absolutely, and I think I would think in the situation like like, like for the, the Rope Mansion, there's so much history there that I mean, there's no way that any not that any one person could uncover all that. So maybe, yeah. but by yeah. giving you the keys, so you know, by, by essentially giving you the keys, you what you might have uncovered stuff that nobody really knew either.
1: I think that's true. I, I I think I started making connections with things like, for example, again, this is somewhat speculative, right? I don't know what happened to Tichuba. I mean, her story is really interesting and some something of a lost soul in history, right? Arthur Miller writes about her and how she was, you know, she was originally from Barbados and she probably had some interactions with the children. Um, she may have been practicing, uh, you know, either an Afro-Caribbean religion or something, you know, related to that. And then she gets accused of witchcraft. Her life becomes ruined and upended. And then she, you know, gets accused, put in jail, and then eventually released and becomes a slave again. And then she disappears. This is a person. This is someone who had, you know, family. She had a life. It's just what happened to her. And and in my book, I started thinking about that. Like, what happened to her? And and could she be very possibly buried on that property? Absolutely. The answer is yes. And when I asked, you know, do you guys ever thinking about digging up that, right. that plot? You know, and the answer is no. We don't really want to know what's under there, frankly, because no. it really does become a big problem. And it makes you think with history, we know like the tip of the iceberg about what really happened. And every so often people stumble on, you know, like in Egypt, they stumble on these these hidden tombs of the pharaohs and so forth. Right. And then when they find something, they're like, holy cow, there's this truth was there the whole time. We didn't know it. And then we have to rewrite history. But that's true even in modern times, even in modern times, we occasionally find a um, sort of a locked tomb or, or a, a unmarked grave and dig it up and say, wow, this forces us to rewrite our history of you know, the witch trials entirely or something like that.
0: Well even in uh, Renee Pittman's book I finally got her name right. See how we screw names up. You know there's there's sections there's little sections in there after these mass hangings where the family is, is sneaking up that the the river by moonlight to pick up their loved one's bodies That's and right. bury them either on their property or somewhere else. So That's maybe right. with with the Tuba maybe that was the case is, is maybe her family members or somebody had buried her there
1: we absolutely don't know and that's entirely possible and that actually relates to one of the topics in ben's bones was they uh it, it's fascinating that vision uh that what you just described is actually very true accurate mm-hmm. that even in london at that time in the 1770s they were ferrying the bodies that the anatomists would be um operating on you know doing anatomy analysis on up and down the Thames river in the middle of the night so you have these strange imagined visions you know these bodies being ferried on a little canoe or something you know a little little skiff in the middle of the night and so we don't we just don't know and um i was just really interested in saying you know why wouldn't we want to know why wouldn't an archaeologist not want to really get into that basement and tear it up and um i think the reality is that there isn't as much of an interest in finding out the truth as you might think um what happened in london they stumbled on those twenty-eight bodies when they were renovating the basement of this of this house. This house was there three hundred years or two hundred fifty years. Um, no one knew anything. They knew Ben Franklin lived there for decades, but they, that's all they knew. And and a few years ago, two thousand sixteen or so, they're in the basement and they're you know putting in a new uh, floor or whatever, and they stumble on a human skull and then another one and then they find twenty-eight. And that was not the product of archaeology. That was pure coincidence. They totally just stumbled on that, and now they've rewritten the entire history of Link of, uh, of um, uh, Franklin's time in uh-huh. London in that era because they, before that, knew nothing about that relationship.
0: Right. right. Well, maybe, yeah, I agree. Maybe it's like you say, like, you know, a case like Salem because of all the history that they've been able to dig up and have, adding something to that would just throw everything off.
1: Yeah, I also think there's just a practical reality. I think the practical reality is, um, I'll give an example. In downtown Manhattan, where the federal courthouse was built, they were excavating to put in the foundations, um, I don't know, maybe about 10 or 15 years ago. They stumbled on an ancient African slave burial ground. And what they had to do as a result of stumbling on these bodies is they had to reroute all of downtown Manhattan uh, the building structure for the federal courthouse, which cost, you know, under tens of millions of dollars because now they had to move the foundation over and and build the courthouse around that plot. And uh-huh. so if you think about it from the practical reality of those contractors, they would have probably preferred not to have found that burial ground at all. They would have preferred to just put down the foundation and and move on. So the practical reality is history is sometimes inconvenient. You know, it's not something that, you know, we'd love to learn about, but as a practical matter, it can be baggage that can, in many ways, get in the way of modern progress. Or can I be understand
0: seen that? that. I mean, I live by the Sacramento River over here, or the American River over here, and a lot of the houses that they built over there, they had to stall um, building them because they, they would dig up a skull here and there, you know, yeah. from the Indian burial grounds. And the next yep. thing you know, the state's involved, and here comes the anthropologist, and all this is going on before people can even move in out there
1: yeah yeah it could take years of sorting out the legalities i'm a lawyer and and i know that the legal system is incredibly uh, expensive and lengthy and so imagine you're exactly putting in a trench or something for a new highway and you discover a new native american burial ground what that triggers in terms of the state and federal government is regulation and investigation and uh, of course the the goal the the intention is good right that we want to respect the past but it can really slow things down and yeah those houses can be put on delay so Salem, because Salem respects history, and it really does um, mm-hmm. in many ways. Um, that land has never been built on. The the oddity of Salem um, for anybody who's never been there, go. It's it's just a really interesting place to visit in your life, uh, especially around Halloween. But Salem is interesting because it, it took a really tragic time in American history pre-Revolutionary uh, pre, pre uh, uh, revolutionary War history. And rather than sort of be embarrassed by it and hide it, they sort of embrace it and try to learn from it. And so that's one of the really interesting things about Salem is it's a fairly progressive city, town, not far from Boston, but it's got a really cool vibe to it because it it really did take something that was really intolerant and horrible and uh, really uh, I mean some people would say exploit it for tourist attraction yeah. that that's that's the downside if you look at it that way, um, but the upside of it is I think that the museum like the Essex Peabody they do a pretty good job of teaching context and teaching oh. you know tolerance but um, but anyway Salem Salem I highly recommend and I definitely recommend a visit to the ropes.
0: When you talk about you know what what you just said about that, it kind of rang a bell with me because I think, you know, Salem has done a good job of preserving that history. It's not the best history. Like you say, a lot of places maybe don't want to talk about that kind of history or, or be known yeah. for that, but Salem has embraced it.
1: Yeah. And, and well, they have for a very long time. I, I think, you know, when you read about the true history of Salem and I, I think that the reality was Uh, But by, and now we're talking about pure history here. Uh Um, I think Salem itself was pretty embarrassed by what it did even quickly after it happened. You know, it wasn't like the kind of thing where these zealots were in power for very long. My understanding is even within a few years after that, uh, 1692, I think a lot of the local, uh, the governor and a lot of the local officials were really embarrassed and horrified that this happened on American soil or or on uh, colonial soil, I should say. And um, and so it pretty quickly became the case that people were, you know, not thrilled about what had happened and decided to kind of move on. By the way, this is really fascinating uh, fact. I, I found this out as I was researching. There is a, uh, a there are a people there's a group of people today who have proven their direct descendants of the women who were accused and killed for witchcraft. And they have their own Facebook page and wow. a group, and they are the they are the direct descendants of the 1692 Salem witch trial victims, That's and great. yeah, and some of them are still the same name, the bishop name, and so forth, and um, and so that played a role in my story too because I started thinking about you know we're talking about really this is 300 years ago, uh-huh. you know these folks still have you know a direct line. Of ancestry to these people who were hanged, you know, innocent people who were hanged for uh, crimes they didn't commit, and they still very much hold on to that history. It's, it's not something like you know ancient history that's forgotten. This, these are people right. who live there today, and Salem is a it's an old town. I mean, it's really you know they the the burying ground there is still the same burying ground where those bodies were hanged that night that night in 1692. It's it's hasn't changed very much. So even though it's American, it's almost european in terms of its its history its lineage it's very old
0: now where your book's concerned is is that where you think the appeal is when when people see that they realize it's it's a house in salem
1: well, people love the fact that they can actually visit it, right? And as, as I mentioned earlier, one, one of the things about my other books, like for example, *Post Butcher, which is set in Europe in the 1400s, or Ben's Bones*, set in London, is that those are, for most people, relatively inaccessible places that they're not going to be able to go, right. uh, most likely go, or they're certainly not going to make a trip there. But Salem is a destination that a lot of people really want to see in their life in, in America. And the ropes in particular is a, a real draw in Salem. I, I was amazed when I when I was there that there were lines just around the block for people to just take a photo in front of this building. So yeah. So if you go there anytime in, you know, for example, October or September. Right you will see lines on a weekend snaking around that entire property for people to just take a photo in, in front of that door, in front of those finials. And um, it's just, to me, that's really fascinating that so many years later, the house still has that draw. And what is it? Do people even know what that draw is? And I asked some of them, like, why are you taking a photo? And some people said, cause it was in the movie, uh, hocus pocus, but a lot of other people say it's just, it's sort of the hallmark of Salem. It's sort of the Salem house, so to speak. Um, it also is a house that's very mysterious, as I said. A lot of the other houses, like the House of the Seven Gables that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote about, that's been heavily investigated, right? People know people know the history of the House of the Seven Gables pretty well. They mm-hmm. have since Hawthorne wrote about it. But the ropes is still cryptic, still mysterious for whatever reason.
0: And how long did it take you to write the book you said?
1: So Salem's ropes was short. That was like a year. Okay. That wasn't that okay. wasn't too bad at all. Um, each book takes me. A different amount of time based on the inspiration uh-huh. um and and so the the historical books take a lot longer um because the story isn't clear to me um how i'm gonna you know is the story of ben franklin in london is that going to draw people in on its own but film's ropes you know that dream i had really like i said it just kind of told itself the story oh. of the house told itself and that made my job a lot easier in telling telling their story
0: that's fascinating. And then you wrote a second book based on that, right, with the, with
1: the Pope? Yeah. So the so the post-butcher, as I mentioned, that that story, uh, again, I sort of stumbled on it. And uh, it, here's a really bizarre and interesting connection. So in the 1400s, there was this serial killer who had um, he had been functioning as a, a witch torturer, uh, you know, an interrogator of witches. Mm-hmm. And he was working for the Pope directly. And this is absolute fact there's no no fiction in this the guy was completely crazy and he was going around murdering women like a serial killer this you know he was going out and doing really horrific things and very unlikely in my opinion that had anything to do really with the occult or witchcraft mm-hmm. so i read the book that he wrote that the serial killer wrote it's called the malaeus maleficarum or the witch's hammer And you can read this book, you can buy it on Amazon, the English translation, you can buy it and read it. And it becomes very, very clear that this guy, the Pope's butcher who wrote the book, was completely insane. And he was given the highest power in Western, the Western church. I mean, this guy could go to any town, any city, in any country, and Mm -hmm. he could round up people by the thousands and just execute them. Just say, they're heretics, they're witches, they're into the occult, want to take them out. So... God only knows how many people this guy killed. But he was doing it, I believe, to some extent because he was insane and because he was actually enjoying his job. Um, So uh, I I drew the analogy to Torquemada, who was another um, inquisitor at the time. But this guy was stranger and darker. And if you read his book, his treatise, but here's one bizarre twist. That book that this serial killer wrote in the 1400s, was the handbook they used in Salem in 1692 to try the witches and kill them at Salem. His book. So he was a Catholic theologian at the time in the 1400s, but he wrote a book that became the best-selling book in history, more popular than the Bible at the time. And that's because the Bible, everybody knew what the Bible said, but this guy's book was salacious. It was all about witches and orgies and how to kill how to know who's a witch and how to kill them and how to drown them that was really salacious so his book 300 or whatever it was years later 200 years later ended up in the hands of the people in Salem who were saying yeah we have the bible but we have this guy's the witch's hammer and so I drew yeah so I drew a direct parallel in my writing between things that happened in Middle Ages in Europe, in a different language, a different era, but yet it somehow made its way to the New World and infected the thinking of these um, secular authorities, right? The people in Salem that they weren't, they weren't, you know, uh, priests. They were, they were secular government officials who were influenced by the serial killer who wrote the book two hundred years ago in in Rome. So, I find this stuff absolutely fascinating, disturbing, of course, and dark. Right but really just fascinating history that they don't teach you in school.
0: Who would have figured? That's something. That is something. You're, you're right. You're right. Absolutely right. Now, when you were doing research on, on the Pope story, did, did you have any uh, trouble getting information on that?
1: Well, the trouble I had was simply the fact that it was very, very, very old and written in another language. So I actually spent I spent a lot of time on that book, and I actually went to Europe, couple of times, um, and I had been there for other reasons, for business and so forth, but I also went there just for research. And I went to the locations where these things happened, and they were in far, sometimes far flung places. They weren't just in Rome, they were in Bavaria, they were in France, they were in um, uh, parts of Italy and Germany. And I, and I went to these places, and one of the things that struck me was that these were often places that were very far away from the centers of, of civilization, right? Some of the stuff you couldn't get away with if you are in the middle of Paris, right? Or London, like some of the stuff. But if you were in a town in the north of France in the 1400s as a, as a churchman, it's pretty much nothing you couldn't get away with, right? Your authority was pretty much unbridled. And so when I did the research, it was all there, but it was really hard to understand. So what I did was I went to um, scholars both in Europe and in New York. And I went to them and said, can you translate this for me? Some of these original source materials, I don't really understand it. And um, there was a guy at Harvard who did a recent translation of the Malayas Mufakarm. That was really helpful. He had done that two years before I wrote my book. So that was really helpful to have a new translation because the old one from the 1920s was very poor. And then uh, I hired researchers from Fordham and schools in, in Europe and they went through and we started finding some really additional weird stuff. I mean, this guy was really, really weird. And a lot of it just didn't make its way into the history books because it was just so weird. You know, historians in the past tend to be a conservative group. They'd write it, you know, especially in Europe in the 19th century. You know, they're not going to write down every weird story because it doesn't, it's unseemly, it doesn't really fit the narrative. But when you actually dig into stuff that happened, it is really really hair raising sometimes and i'll give you an example this is in the book the guy was talking women into giving testimony by putting them in an oven and he would do this time after time after time and the townspeople knew it but they were afraid to say anything about it so then when you read the story about what he was doing
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: whitewashed right and it just says he used cruel methods of torture But there's much more there that the historians just glossed over either because they didn't know or didn't want to know. And when you dig deep with modern sensibilities, when you research it and you get it translated, you say, oh, my God, like these weren't they weren't just, you know, sort of, you know, killing people like hanging them. Right. These people were doing some very strange things. And what they were saying when you dig deeper into their narratives, they were really disturbed and they were really, really strange people. Um, And the last thing I'd say about the Pope's butcher that really blew my mind was, here's this book that the guy wrote, as I said, most popular book in history next to the Bible in terms of the printing press. When Gutenberg came out, the printing press, they printed tens of thousands of these copies. Why was this Inquisitor, who apparently hated witches so much and hated the occult, why did his book contain so much detail about how to practice the occult? So, in other words, when you read his book, he says, oh... This is how you tell a witch. This is what witches do. Here's 50 pages of how to practice witchcraft. That's what the witches do. Now, it occurred to me after I read this, could this guy have been trying to get that information out there? Maybe he was himself involved in some way with the occult, and maybe he wasn't really trying to just, you know, hide it and squash it because if you really were a legitimate uh church person and you're horrified by the occult in the middle ages Uh you kill witches whatever you you, you excommunicate them and you get rid of the heresy why would you print the heresy by the tens of thousands of copies and distribute them freely all over the world if they contain all the heresy within them and detailed recipes and so forth and manuals of how to do it something was just not right there and to this day i don't really have a good answer for what was really going on when i pressed the the big researchers at the top universities they said well we don't really know i mean we have our theories but people just don't know what happened 500 years ago
0: this has been a fascinating hour i thank you so much for coming on my pleasure i learned so much thank you
1: really thank you yeah, very much i would much love for to have
0: me. you on a later date to talk about men's bones right because absolutely all right, yeah, absolutely Yep. what's next for you sir
1: oh a good question i'm I'm constantly writing i'm actually gonna probably switch hats for once and write a book uh about movie props something completely unrelated to this That's stuff cool. i love movie pro- i collect props from real movies uh not not big things but small things things that made their appearances on screen in big movies and oh. i i fascinated by the the hobby of people who collect the, the props that were in the original movies of the Maltese Falcon or uh, the original uh, lightsaber from Star Wars. You know, these, oh, yeah. these things ended up somewhere, and they're, it's just a fascinating history of movie props. So I may, may take off the paranormal hat for a while and have some fun.
0: That would be fun. You know, I always wanted to work either as a um, as a sound, you know, as, as the person making the sounds and stuff for the movies, oh, or I yeah. wanted to work in the prop department at Universal.
1: Uh, the prop guys at universal they have the best job in the world in yeah. my opinion those guys have access most fascinating people and what i really love to do is interview them someday i really love to get in there and see what they do because they, they really create magic the, the prop masters i just find that stuff fascinating
0: and then being able to walk through there and all the history like, the history you know, of the, the last
1: movies, yeah the 20th century all the movies from,
0: were you know for oh yeah this, this 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 was for this movie you know it's yeah. really cool it's really cool All right, sir. How can people contact you or find you?
1: Um, They can uh, basically go to my Amazon page where all my books are listed. That's the easiest place to do it. Um, My email address is also inside the cover of my books, and you can contact me that way. Um, You can even email me through my law firm email address if you just search for my name, Joseph Mm -hmm. Chiaconda. um, I uh, I love to hear from people, love to hear from folks who are interested in the topics and uh, share ideas and share stories.
0: All right, Joseph. Well, thank you. And please do come back sometime.
1: Anytime. Thank you so much.
0: All right. So you have a good evening.
1: You too. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. All right. That was really cool. That was like definitely cool. And who's the thought that everything would link in with with Renee Pittman's book that we read, right? Okay. Tomorrow, we're going to be on at 1 p.m. Pacific. It's going to be an early show. But we're going back to the whole exorcism thing. We're going to be talking with Seth L. Smith. I'm sorry, Scott L. Smith is wrong with me today scott l smith and he has written a book about catholic exorcisms and not only has he done that he's written about some famous exorcism cases he studied a a couple of famous catholic exorcists so we're going to learn a lot about the right of exorcism through the catholic church tomorrow so that'll be 1 p.m pacific also again if you're watching the show and uh let me get my other thing up here who's got the buttons there we go And you like what you see and you're watching from Facebook, please be sure to shoot me a thumbs up, shoot me some heart, show me some love. Um, And also, if you haven't um, done so yet, follow, because we have shows every day, every day except Saturday night. But we do shows every day. So follow and uh, everything. You know, every day is a different topic. We did what we did exorcism on Monday. That right. Yeah. We did exorcism yesterday. Yesterday was Monday. Plus, we had recordings of demons. Kind of spooky. And then we we did this thing on the Ropes Mansion today. And tomorrow, of course, is going to be Exorcism. Oh, yes. The other note, too, is tomorrow is a special show because uh, this is season three of this show in this format. I've been on the air for about 15, 16, maybe 17 years because I started out on Blog Talk Radio. And then I finally converted to this format back three years ago. Anyway, so for this year, this season three, this is uh, tomorrow is our 200th episode for this year. Yeah. That's a lot of episodes, so I like to you know I like to have lots of topics, lots of guests, lots of topics. Anyway, so join us tomorrow for the 200th episode, and then Thursday I'm going to try and do something kind of special to celebrate that 200th episode. Don't know what it is yet, but uh, I'm working on it. Okay. Now getting back to watching, uh, watching from Facebook and YouTube again. If you're watching from YouTube and you like what you saw, please please hit that subscribe button and hit those thumbs up and the smileys and all that good stuff. Again, it helps us go into the algorithm. And puts us out in the World Wide Web more so. Okay, I'm also on Instagram under GhostyGal. It's all lowercase. We're over at Twitter under CalHunts. And we're over at uh, TikTok under CaliforniaHunts. And we are also over at Twitch. I think we're under CalHunts at Twitch as well. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. And again, I'm, I'm going to do it again. Uh, you see that ticker at the bottom going saying we, about the hard drive. This, this computer um, didn't have a big hard drive to begin with, so I knew it was going to fill up fast. It's taken a couple of years. I bought this backup hard drive. Works great, except that one's almost full. That's a, that's a three, like a four terabyte hard drive is my backup hard drive. So I need to get either a new computer or a backup hard drive. So I, I would like to rebuild the hard drive in the main computer so that, that then you see about the $129 goal That would pay for that hard drive, you know. Uh, for the replacement hard drive for this laptop. And if you could help me out with that, California Haunts Radio takes no money or anything, even for investigations. We do everything because we're trying to help people and whatnot. And so we, but we do take donations. So if you could find it in your heart to donate to help me get close to that $129 goal, that would be great. Uh, you can do that at PayPal. Hang on. PayPal.me. <laughs> i me trying to read it. PayPal.me forward slash California Haunts. Or you can do that at California Haunts. And the, or Venmo at like California Haunts, you know? You don't have to. I'm just saying if, if you feel in your heart you have a few extra bucks cash to help me out, that would be great because, like I said, everything that we get in goes towards either the Paranormal Group or this radio show to maintain because I pay for everything out of, out of my own pocket, okay? So I pay for the Internet and all that other stuff as well. And something breaks, boom, just like the hard drive. Okay, that's enough said on that. Tomorrow I will see you guys at 1 p.m. Pacific, and we're going to be talking to... Scott L. Smith about Catholic exorcisms. Have a great evening, everybody. And I hope you enjoyed this show because I didn't. I'm going to try and get this gentleman back on to talk about Ben's bones at a later time. Let me give you some information on him and his books, and here we go. Okay. There's the first book for uh, uh the, 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 the Salem's ropes. That's one of the books. God, I'm just totally up because I was working in the yard today. My got a little loopy. And uh the Pope's Butcher. And the, bo- the, the, the the fleeting book. And that is also a book of short horror stories. Ghost stories and stuff. And then Ben's Bones. And then those those are available at Amazon, of course. And that's where you can contact him through his author page on Amazon or Google him for his law office. Okay, guys, I will see you tomorrow. Have a great evening, and I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. Have a good one.